hopefully what I speak about tonight will be in the service of helping us begin to be able to evaluate our practice from the terms of balance rather than looking at it in terms of progress. So it's the shift from worrying about what's happening to simply being willing and able to evaluate what's the balance of mental factors, what's the balance of energy here. It's a really different way to relate to what's going on, and it takes a lot of the suffering out. This is my only current reading that I can share with you this talk from the front of a magazine in the supermarket, Cosmopolitan. So this is an art, this is advertising an article which I did not read. This is just when you found perfect happiness, it's gone. <laughs> no, but that's not the end. How to get it back. That's not what I'm promising tonight. That's what progress. That's not what we're looking for. So this notion of balance, and specifically I want to talk about the mental factor of energy, sometimes translated as effort. It came up the other morning in the questions. When I was here, this question about Sometimes we give instructions for very precise, focused concentration, connecting with experience. Sometimes we talk about resting in spaciousness, open awareness. But the trick is this open awareness must be vivid, alert, wakeful. And this precise, connected quality, this tremendous energy that we put out has to also be effortless. How do we do that? It's a good question. A lot of the ways or models in which one can speak about this practice of insight meditation, a lot of the models are ways of looking at balance. So, for example, for those of you who came to listen to the the tape talk last Friday by Sayadaw Pandita, which he mentioned, he spoke about the first of the seven factors of enlightenment, which is mindfulness, big surprise. But this paradigm, this way of uh, describing our experience as seven mental factors is one of the ways of looking at our experience, our practice in terms of balance. So rather than, am I having you know, a far out sitting? Am I feeling happy? Are things really clear? You know, or no, I'm having too much emotion, or things are difficult. Really, when you come into interviews, I'll let you in on a secret. We don't really care what's happening. We really don't. What we, do <laughs> what we do care about, often we're just looking at how are these seven factors of experience, these seven factors of mind manifesting? Are they in balance with one another? Are they even present? 
They are, believe me, they are. But a lot of what we're doing is bringing them into balance with each other. And what particular appearance is manifesting really doesn't make any difference. So these seven qualities, the first is mindfulness, and then there are three energetic qualities, which are investigation, dharma investigation, not thinking about things, investigation, energy, or sometimes translated effort, and rapture, joy. And then there are three tranquilizing or calmer qualities, and those are calm, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. Tonight I want to talk specifically about the quality of effort or energy, but I just mentioned it that one way of balance is within these seven factors. It takes a lot of the identification away if you look at your experience in that way. And I think one of the, well, the reason I like to use the translation energy for the Pali word virya rather than effort is because personally, in my experience, I tend to identify more with the word effort as that somehow I should be able to control it. And in that way, I think is one of the ways we miss relate we relate to the quality of energy in a way that brings on suffering by not recognizing that it's impermanent and that it's not self. I think for me it's really easy to identify or take as personally as me or mine the quality of experience that manifests as energy. Or as if you keep coming to Upandita's talk, you'll hear it, courageous, heroic effort. That's an aspect of it. But if I think I should be putting out courageous, heroic effort every moment, or I'm lazy, we run into difficulty when we hit the other aspect of the fact that energy is impermanent and it rises and falls. So how to come into a relationship that can help us explore what's really happening with an attitude of uh, interested evaluation, skillful means, rather than, you know, I blew it or I'm the greatest yogi going. How to relate to energies if it's good and push harder and push harder and push harder until your head is hitting against the wall, in which case then we totally give it up. So I just, I'll just give up and take a few days off till it comes back. There, there's a middle ground here. And that's what we can learn to work with in, in exploring this quality of balance of energy, of effort. So the first aspect that I find helpful in learning how to recognize, become comfortable with, the experience of effortless energy, of the times when there really is this strong, connected quality of energy that is not pushing. And there's something Michelle spoke about on Monday, the quality of interest. 
So I just want to make a couple of points about it, as I know she spoke about it. We tend to often, I do, think of, as we know, when there's interest, clearly the energy is there. It's not such an effort to pay attention. But if we think about, oh, how can I be interested all day in this stuff that's going on, it just seems, it feels exhausting. Just the idea of getting interested in these things that, as if somehow inherently the breath is not interesting or sensations are not interesting. Somewhere we have to crank up artificially this quality of interest, and that takes too much energy, and we don't have energy, so you know, forget the whole thing. Instead of looking at it, that inherent interest, that interest actually brings the energy, and that we, each of us, have the capability to be really effortlessly interested for long periods of time. And here we think, oh, yeah, right, you know, I can't stay with one breath, I can't stay with two breaths. But how interested are you when you're really involved in working on your computer? I see people just drawn into the computer screen, and they can't get away from it for hours. You know, people that might think, well, I I don't have a very long attention span. Or watching uh, friends watch sports on television. I mean, it's actually quite enthralling to me to watch my friends just glued for hours. They're not saying it's so exhausting to pay attention to this sports game. I just don't know if I can keep the attention, the interest going. Quite the contrary. If one were to try and, you know, start another conversation, you wouldn't even be heard. Total samadhi, you know, on sports. It's, it's fascinating to me, actually. So in this country, it's football. In Europe, it's soccer. I remember when the World Cup was happening, my boyfriend's German, so, I mean, being American, I never would have turned it on. But he's just as into it as Americans are into the Super Bowl. And we were traveling around the country teaching. And everywhere we went, we'd have to, we were working at a retreat in California we, in a convent. We had to dig up a television, bring it into the one free room there, and run in and watch the World Cup in between every free moment. And the interest is infectious because pretty soon all the women who were cooking for us on the retreat were in there watching too. And then one time we came in and they had already come in and turned it on and they were really, they'd been into it for an hour before we'd even come in. It's, nobody's saying, oh, I'm so tired of this. It's, it's, it's very enlivening. Well, I'll tell you a secret. There's not something that's inherently interesting about soccer or football (laughs) that we cannot find in our own life. I mean, in the process of our own life here, you know, that is really, it's so much more interesting than a stupid game on television. (laughs) Why do we find it so, so difficult? to contact this quality of interest, which in itself brings effortless energy. 
it's not inherent. Interest is not in the particular experience, but we relate as if it's so. And we think, well, if something's really intense, we'll get interested. Or in our days here, now we'll come back to the retreat environment and out of football. In our days here, if what's happening in your sitting or your walking or your eating is really different all of a sudden or intense, or it is meeting some idea you have of what's good practice, then we get interested. But so often people will come in and go, yeah, nothing's happening. It's not very interesting. I'll say, nothing? Oh, yeah, well, sure, there's the breath, and there's a lot of calm, and, you know, sensations come and go, and thoughts and emotions. And Santa said, oh, so a lot of things are arising and passing, and there's calmness. Yeah, yeah, I guess there's a lot of things happening, but it's all so familiar, so it's not that interesting. I read this in a San Francisco paper a couple of years ago. A young 21-year-old woman born with cystic fibrosis, which is a lung disease that you're born with and gets progressively worse. You rarely live uh, much past 30. At 21, she had a partial lung transplant from each of her parents to, to keep her alive longer. And she said, it's quite young and naive, but it's so sweet. She says, it's so nice to be able to breathe like a normal person. I stand up straight all by myself now, and I don't have blue fingers or blue lips. I love air. It's so nice. Breathing is the most wonderful feeling that I could ever imagine. It's wonderful. We don't really know if we're ever going to have another breath. And that's just the fact of life. How can it get so mundane to us? It's so easy for us to lose this quality of of interest, of connection that brings everything so alive that then lets the energy, the effort, become much more balanced without our striving so hard. One thing that happens when we begin to experience what's happening as familiar or a bit mundane, not very interesting, is that really the, the mindfulness, the attention, is just sort of skimming the surface of experience. That's why there's so much emphasis on experiencing mindfulness as that stone that drops in. A stone that drops in, not that's thrown in. It drops in <laughs> easily by itself. Sometimes it just touches the surface and floats a little, and then if you just let it sit there, it'll start to sink. Even that cork. So many people have come and said, I don't want to be like the cork. I want to be like the stone. No, no. Even if you just let the cork sink, it'll eventually get waterlogged, you know, <laughs> and sink. But that's a lot of why the emphasis on mindfulness is sinking in, because when there's that gentle connection, the interest comes back. 
The breath is interesting. Sensations are interesting. Frustration is interesting. Boredom can even be interesting. When there's just that willingness to touch it with attention. So that's how why we have such an emphasis on the sinking in quality of mindfulness. And again, that non-discriminating quality that we've mentioned of not choosing this is worth being mindful of and this isn't. Because another way that helps us balance the energy through balancing interest is to balance our perspective or balance our perception our interpretation of experience. And again, I've spoken of this, I'll just touch on it, but it's that the balance, I mean, is not to get so caught in our evaluations of this is good practice, this is bad, this is a horrible experience, this shows I'm worthless, this is a great experience, this shows I'm really getting it. All this interpretation is what gets in the way of a a commonality of interest and a balanced energy. Because when we define something as painful, bad, not worth attention, or going in the wrong direction, we tend to pull away or get involved in struggle. Immediately the energy gets out of balance. It turns to pushing. Or this is good, this should stay, again the energy gets out of balance, it turns to, hold on, hold on, make this happen more. The only energy or effort that we are, wise effort that we're cultivating is simply the energy to meet what happens fully, to meet it, to sink in just as it is. That's all. As soon as it tips over into trying to push away or change or hold on to, we've moved out of balanced energy into striving or aversion and we start to suffer. So again, one way, another way that helps us come back to balance is to balance our perspective, our perception. And sometimes a little reflection on our experience can help. Because reflection can be helpful. Permitted thinking. You get about three sentences to reflect, and then when the first sentence repeats, it's time to stop and reconnect with something else that's happening. But a little balanced reflection can be extremely helpful. So when you're thinking, oh no, as for some reason, a lot of people not everybody, but a lot of people in the last couple of days are like, oh, no, it's all going to hell now. And it was going so well. And implicit, even though we say, well, I know, it all comes and goes, and I'm just being with it. But there's often that nub down there. What did I do wrong? How can I get it back like it was? Right away, you know, you're going to be an unbalanced effort, unbalanced energy. So a little reflection, just to notice, you can't say, this is good and this is bad, this should be here, this isn't. You can't separate the two. Thich Nhat Hanh has a wonderful way of describing it. They say, you know, we love a rose, really beautiful, garbage, not worth our attention. 
But if you have a rose long enough, like those beautiful yellow roses up here, they decay and decay, and pretty soon we throw them in the garbage. And they are the garbage. How can you separate them? Then we take the garbage, turn it into compost, put it on the flower beds, and it grows more roses. You can't separate. This is rose and this is garbage. They're absolutely part of each other. And it's the same in our meditation. So you have an incredibly perfect, brilliant day of flowing clear mindfulness, or whatever for you is a perfect, brilliant day, whatever your mind decides, this is perfect, brilliant practice. And what happens within probably two days maximum? Gone, gone. And instead, a turmoil of emotion, just overcome with anger, or overcome with restlessness, or lost in a flurry of doubt or self-hatred or whatever it might be, or just plain frustration. And it's so easy to think those are two separate events when in fact we can never trace all the causes and effects, but in fact I would posit from my experience that they are absolutely mutually interdependent and both equally vital aspects of the unfolding of our practice that's happening. We don't get it all one way. And in fact, most of the really uh, deep understandings that have arisen in my mind in practice and in life, and that have the ones that have really served me in my life, they've, so many of them have come out of the most god-awful times in practice, because sometimes if we can get over our, this is bad, make it go away, try, 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 if we can just see that this is also an opening into truth, this absolutely dreadful experience of self-hatred and frustration can be the opening into connecting again with the sublime When we can have that attitude, the interest comes back and the effort comes back into balance. In other words, the effort starts trying to be to change it and just to meet it. And then the flower opens by itself. Poem I like that expresses this from, uh, I think somebody read a poem from her, Shikibu, a Japanese woman of about the 10th or 11th century. Although the wind blows terribly here, the moonlight also leaks between the roof planks of this ruined house. Although the wind blows terribly here, the moonlight also leaks between the roof planks of this ruined house. I love it. As we look up, because the wind's blowing and the roof planks and the house is ruined, and just when we're ready to get in a rage, we notice the moonlight streaming in. I feel like that a lot. A ruined house with moonlight streaming in. That's our life. It's our practice. So learning when the interest is there, learning how to recognize, to become familiar with this quality, this mental factor of 
effortless energy of balanced energy, balanced effort. Become familiar, recognize, because it's in the recognition it becomes easier to find it again. I found when, when the, the energy is balanced like that and the interest comes, it's its own reward. One of the ways I know that my energy is balanced is because I really don't care anymore what's happening. That that quality of meeting what's ever happening with a fullness of presence is so fulfilling that I really am not needing for what's happening to be better or worse. I'm not needing for something nice to stay. It just feels so wholehearted. Recognize. You all have that experience at times. Recognize it. Because it will change. There is no way it's not going to change. It doesn't mean we made a mistake. But recognize it because when it does change, the way we learn how to come into balance is by falling out of balance. That's something Chogyam Chungpa said once. Balance implies a kind of tilting, right? Balance doesn't imply a static sense. Oh, I've gotten there, I'm balanced, it stays. We get that sense, what it feels like, that wholeheartedness of effortless energy, and then it tips out. Because we learn to recognize its presence, we learn to recognize that it tilts out and how it tilts out. So rather than blaming, it's information. Oh, so one way, and maybe it's the most subtle way, but it's probably the most common, is we're in a space of wholehearted effort, just being present, really present, and one can put out a tremendous quality of energy in this space of balanced wholeheartedness. And then somehow, slightly somewhere, we don't notice but the motivation shifts a little bit. It doesn't take much. And from the energy that we put out, which is just to meet what's happening, very fully, moment to moment, there can come in just a little bit of wanting to change, or I meet this so that it can open, so that the process can continue. You know, I will meet this to control it or somehow the mind is just leaning forward a little bit into the future, just thinking how this neat space is going to turn into something else. It can be very subtle. You'll find your own way. But, I mean, you already have your own ways. You'll start to recognize your own ways. And often we don't notice that right at the beginning. That first change can be a little subtle but it starts to feel different. The quality of effort takes on uh, a kind of a tightness, a striving, uh, a little bit we're falling out of balance or leaning forward or looking back rather than right here. And maybe we don't notice that. And it still feels like you're putting out a really strong effort. This isn't, you know, when we've given up. This is when we're heading towards beating our head against the wall phase. But where it goes from feeling fulfilling, it starts to feel a little strained. 
we begin to feel maybe frustrated, self-doubt starts to come in, some kind of, uh, I can't do this, I'm no good, or this is no good, whatever form it takes, judgment. And all of a sudden, it's one big drag. We don't quite see how it got there, and it doesn't matter. But it's it's interesting to, to notice, to look back at the motivation, because you can be putting out really an enormous amount of effort and energy, but because the effort is tinged with wanting or expectation, we've fallen out of balance, and it leads into such a tightness, striving, doubt, frustration, all of those particular. So this quality of interest, the the really heroic enthusiasm, in some way has to come in a balanced way from within ourselves. Once it's not there, if we don't recognize that and try to come back in balance, it's easy to uh, practice very diligently, but in a dead sort of dry way, like meeting the outer form, but the inner connection isn't there. I'll give an example. And ultimately, you can't keep it up. It cracks somehow. A few years ago, I came here to do a two-month retreat with Sayada Upandita, which does require an enormous amount of energy and effort. It's not like you can't go into him and say, well, I, I felt a little tight, so I went out for a walk in the woods, and then I went down and took a walk around the pond and read a little bit, had some tea, and I'm feeling much better. It doesn't cut a lot of slack with him the way that he teaches. Now, when I'm in a balanced space, as I said, a tremendous effort can be put out. And I know what that looks like because I've done it before. At the beginning of this retreat, the day before the retreat began, I was flying here from somewhere and at at an airport somewhere. I spoke to my mother on the phone and she told me she had just been diagnosed with cancer and was going to have an operation, like a double operation in about a week which is like a shock. I didn't even know this was in the works. It really hit me. So I said, well, I'm coming home. She said, no, I don't want you to come. You can't come, which is not like her. She said, you have to go do your retreat. It's very important to you. You must go do your retreat. But she was so adamant, I felt, well, she really doesn't want me to come. So I came to do the retreat, which you can imagine I wasn't in the most wonderful space. So I came, and I just started, and I would call her every day, and it became clear that the operation went well and things were fine. And it didn't feel that the call was much of a disturbance. I'd call and go right back to the practice. So outer form, I was really matching it, sitting, walking, noting, you know, not, not moving away from effort. I knew how to make it look right, even to myself. But there was something so dry and dead. There wasn't the balance of uh, interest and spontaneous connection. I was just trying to match a form, which it took me three weeks to realize this. I mean, I felt like I was being slowly strangled somehow until finally one day I, I used to always walk in a hall on the second floor of the Catskills, and I was walking up the stairs to my place, and this 
thought came in my mind, but you know those thoughts that you know, they're more than thoughts. You really, you really believe this one, like the voice from the divine or something. Whatever this says, that's how it is. And this thought said, if someone else is walking in my place, I'm leaving the retreat. <laughs> and I thought, huh, I think I'd really do it, too. And fortunately or not, no one was walking there. But that really woke me up. I said, what is going on here? You know, and I, and it, it just it actually it woke me up to the fact that half of me wasn't here. And doing the form without that balance of interest, I could have done it for 10 years, and all I would do is get drier and drier. And so actually, I did leave the retreat and go home, and it was the perfect thing to do. And I stayed home for 10 days and came back and really uh, just sank right in because that sense of split wasn't there. I could be wholehearted. So it's not always such a kind of dramatic thing, but sometimes we fall into sort of ignoring a major issue that's going on and trying to just make our effort, our practice, meet an idea we have, but we can't be wholehearted because we're ignoring some major experience that's happening. You know, so sometimes when it, you hit that real dryness, open up, pull back. What is going on? Because balanced effort, it's not about how it looks to yourself or anybody else. It's not about matching some ideal It's about that quality of energy and interest that can just meet experience moment to moment to moment. So now on the other side, I'm going to keep going back and forth because there's never any one way. So sometimes we push too hard. The effort becomes dull and dry out of expectation or out of not seeing something major going on that we need to give attention to. But on the other side, that doesn't mean that at the first sign of something difficult or dry, we go, "Uh uh-oh, uh-oh, turning into dry, I better check out, I better open up, I better just give myself some kindness, you know. It's not that either. As we've said, with aversion or with sleepiness, as Joseph mentioned the other night, sloth and torpor, the first Uh, effect of unpleasant experience or tiredness, low energy in the mind, is that the mind pulls away from what's going on. And if there's a lot of difficulty, it has the effect of withering the mind because it keeps pulling away, you know. And if you just pound at it, pound at it, you do get exhausted. The energy does really drop. It falls down. We get fatigued. You can see that it's said that energy is like a support It's like it supports a house. It holds it up. So when there's energy, you can be with something that's difficult in a kind of a fresh, balanced way. You notice, depending how your energy cycle is, if you're fresh in the morning and you have a sort of chronic ongoing pain that comes up throughout the day, and in a fresh time, you can really meet it, be with it, be interested. In a low-energy time, it's almost impossible because the energy just isn't there to meet it freshly. But rather than just give up, we can 
withdraw from what's difficult. I don't mean give up. I just mean take the energy away from pounding at the difficult. I'm going to be with this sensation no matter what. Pull it away and freshen it, which as we said often, open up to sounds, open up to seeing if you're outside, take a walk. This is not giving up. It's deliberately doing things that can freshen and bring back some energy and then meeting what is difficult or tiring. It really helps to have the mind bright, clear, and alert. But it is important to find that balance of when to keep meeting what's difficult without giving up and when to back off. The first sign of difficulty to back off is really, as Joseph said last night, it's confusing sloth and torpor. Not last night, but a few nights ago. Confusing sloth and torpor with compassion. Or another phrase from Trungpa that I love, idiot compassion. (laughs) It's like, not really compassion. It's saying, yeah, it'll really be hard on me if I... I'm just so tired. If I keep practicing, it'll just make things harder for me. They say refresh, and so I'll just take a five-hour nap and refresh. That's idiot compassion because it actually increases suffering. It doesn't uh, help suffering ease, which is the point of compassion. So it's not necessarily kind to yourself. Something that I've discovered... When I'm in this state of sort of low energy, not real interest, but not not when you're overwhelmed by something like terror or something really, really difficult to be with, but just the sort of, eh, you know, this is just too much. Who wants to keep doing this? It's boring. It's not interesting. I'll just check out. That's the time to fall back on, not pushing, not unbalanced effort, but to fall back on continuity. I found it's actually much easier to be here 100% than it is to be here 80%. That might sound odd, but look and see. When, when, I'm, when things aren't going the way I want, I don't try and change it, but I say, as we've said before, just sit, just walk. When I'm done with the walking, I just go sit. What happens in the sitting is absolutely out of my control. I'm not sitting and trying to get clear or trying to have things be a certain way, but just sit, and if I can, I come back when I space out. And when I get up from the sitting, if you hear 80%, you'll think, well, maybe I should have a cup of tea now because that would really kind of soothe me. Tea is so comforting. Or maybe I should do something energetic, like do all my laundry. That would be a good thing to do. On and on, and the energy is just leaking out through the thinking and all the sense doors. Maybe I'll read the bulletin board for the 450th time today. There just might be a note for me. If I'm here 100%, I get up from the sitting and I think, oh, I'd like to. It doesn't matter what you'd like to, because you're going to walk out of this room and start walking, and that's it. It actually saves a tremendous amount of energy to just do that instead of let your mind and body run hither and thither. So you just sit, you just walk. When the walking's done, you just sit. 
and don't worry about what's happening. That's where all the suffering and strife is, worrying about what's happening. It's not actually in doing the sitting and the walking. So I've, that has saved me in so many periods of you know, boredom or frustration or low energy. It's just, I just die into the practice. Now you can see this is just the opposite of what I was telling you a minute ago, right? That's how it works with trying to balance energy or effort. You can't take one thing and say this is how to do it. So on the Upandita retreat, it looked like that's what I was doing, dying into the practice, sit, walk, sit, walk. But actually I was ignoring something major. But other times when there's nothing really major going on, I just basically, the energy's low and I'd rather not put out any effort. I just wish things were different. Then I do die into the practice. Just sit, just walk, but don't try to be brilliant about it. Just let it happen. And you know what? The energy comes back by itself. The interest comes back. That's where we can begin to see that energy is simply a factor of mind. It rises and falls. It's affected by conditions. This, to me, is where it gets really interesting instead of personal. It's affected by conditions. So skillful means interventions can sometimes change conditions if we do it with a motivation that isn't out of wanting it to be a certain way. So for instance, I know with sloth and torpor, the energy's low. If I aim very carefully at the breath or at sensations, if I make the noting quite precise, that takes effort and it brings up the energy. And it's just a balanced activity. It's not that I do it because I hate sloth and torpor. If restlessness is there, I know there can be a lot of energy but not enough concentration. And I can deliberately cultivate concentration by really coming back to the breath over and over and over without trying to notice too many things. And the concentration gets stronger and comes up to balance with the energy. And again, the restlessness can shift. That's just two examples. That comes from not identifying with energy but simply seeing that conditions can change it. One other aspect that I find very helpful when it's past the point of skillful evaluation and energy just seems to have dropped out of the bottom and interest is gone, then again we're coming back to wise reflection, which can really be a helpful ally on the quality of spiritual urgency. In Pali, that's samvega. Again, it's a particular quality. Of, it comes from really recognizing the suffering aspects of all life, of our life, not with terror, but with uh, an urge to understand, an urge to be free or to help other beings so that this becomes more urgent, more important than avoidance or denial. Spiritual urgency is a very energizing state. It's not panic. It's not terror. 
it's not like, oh my God, you know, I better get out of this quick and in some kind of total panic. But it's very energizing to help us meet whatever difficulty is arising. There's a couple of reflections or contemplations that we can sort of reach into our bag of tricks when the energy has gotten really low and you can't get the interest there in a balanced way and you don't want to push. One, of course, is uh, appreciation of the preciousness of our current life. Being here on a retreat, it's a rare opportunity because each of us can can consciously reflect on the preciousness of having this time in life, in any one life, the preciousness of having the time to deeply explore what is true, what is suffering, what is peace, what is freedom. That we not only have the time and the health to do it, but that each of us has the interest, which in some ways is the most rare of all. I think often of being in Bodh Gaya, which, as you know, is the, is the town where the Buddha was supposedly enlightened, and so it's a shrine. The, the descendant of the tree under which he sat has a big uh, temple stupa in the middle of a park, and it's a focal point for Buddhist pilgrims from all the Buddhist countries of the world. And it's this dusty little village. It's not so little anymore. It's really grown. And you can see the, the interest and devotion that people bring. And I also often reflect on the people who live there and run the chai shops, the tea shops, and, and who do all the things to make money from the tourists and who maybe have access, have opportunity to hear many teachings and just aren't interested. It's just not important to them in this life. You know, and here we schlep from all the way halfway around the world to go and just sit under this tree. And I actually got very inspired, which surprised me because I'm not so devotional, but it was very moving. And the people who live there, you know, could care less. And so just to reflect on, oh, boy, this, even though I don't feel any energy and even though nothing's happening in my practice and nothing ever will, still there's this precious opportunity and I have the willingness and the interest to come and put myself here and to stay here, no mean feat, to really let yourself feel the gratitude, the appreciation for that. Some, not guilt. <laughs> this is not a guilt trip. We're talking about real appreciation for our opportunities. Often that can bring up, again, energy and interest. There's a, oh, a little something I read from Colette, who is a, a French woman writer. She said, what a wonderful life I've had. I only wish I'd realized it sooner. So this is our chance. This is sooner. It's now. What a wonderful life we have. And then the other reflection, I'm going to condense the three into one. It's basically our old friend and inspiration, the fact of suffering in all its aspects. 
Suffering is a tremendous motivator for urgency, for understanding. Again, not for panic. I'm not talking about panic. But it's what uh, got the, uh, the Bodhisattva before he became the Buddha. The story is that he lived this pristine life where all death and impermanence and sickness was hidden from him. And he left his palace grounds and went out, and it's called the Four Heavenly Messengers, where he ran into an old person, a sick person, a dead person. And he was so shocked by asking his charioteer, well, what's that? Does it happen to everybody? Will it happen to me? And just seeing that suffering, he couldn't, couldn't rest anymore in a life of pleasure. It just woke him up to compassion for, this, for the situation of all of us, including him, and wanting to find the freedom from that pain and confusion. The fourth messenger being a renunciate, which is like a path to understanding. That's available to us. These messengers are available to us at all times in our lives. And I personally find it an enormously helpful and inspiring way to relate to suffering, whether it's your knee pain here or your frustration or your boredom or whether it's in the bigger picture, watching someone else. You can feel when someone here might be suffering. You can see it. Or just looking at nature. Or um, I often have to go to a, a hospital in, in Worcester to see my doctor, a big teaching hospital. And I, I, in some way, I love going there. Now, this might sound sick, but I, I love going there because it wakes me up. I just go there and make it a point to really look around, to just see there's people from all walks of life, from young children to really old, to people who don't speak English, and with all kinds of suffering and all kinds of responses to the suffering from, you know, you can tell, see confusion and terror or a real spark of light or someone who's kind to someone else, how much it lights them up. I always come back from being at the hospital just feeling much more connected and attuned and also more resolute in my willingness to meet whatever's arising in my experience. Using the uh, experience of suffering in whatever aspect as a wake-up call rather than as something fearful or as something to try to hide from. It helps us see what's really important. This is a little bit from a man who has uh, a degenerative lung disease. (laughs) Oh, this is my second lung disease story. I didn't realize that. (laughs) This is really, to me, this is about urgency, seeing what's important. Walking anywhere with friends, especially uphill, is an occasion for silence. I cannot walk, talk, and breathe at the same time. Every gram of oxygen must be used for locomotion. There is nothing left over. Superfluity must go. Whatever's extra must go. This becomes an amazing metaphor in my life 
in my mind? What is superfluous? What is extra? Anger that freezes into resentment, jealousy, greed, gossip, ego clinging, pretense, embarrassment, any form of fixation, running after pleasure, the discursive thought that maintains the storyline of me. These things are very costly in terms of the life energy that it takes to keep them going. They are what conversation is mostly about. I cannot take in enough oxygen to support them anymore, except by holding completely still and doing nothing else. When the oxygen is diminished below a certain point, you must choose absolutely between feeding all your mental bloodsuckers and taking care of your true business. You cannot afford to keep them around as pets. What an opening, what a discovery follows from that simple realization. Could I ever afford it? Can anyone? What made me think that I could not let go of this expensive baggage before now? That's not with a quality of aversion. That's just with the quality of spiritual urgency. What's really important? Is freedom important enough that I can bring my attention to feeling for him the suffering of his lungs, for us whatever happens to be arising? That's all. And the urgency brings us a resoluteness that we sometimes can lose touch with otherwise. As one of my teachers said, comparing urgency to your house being on fire, which the Buddha also used that metaphor often. My teacher said, when your house is on fire and someone comes to tell you, you immediately start home. And if you meet an old friend who says, hey, let's go have a cappuccino, let's sit and talk for a while, You don't have to stop and ponder, well, should I have the coffee? Should I go home? You know, no, we go home. That's the quality of of energy that urgency can bring up in us. It just clarifies what really matters. And so we can use reflection to reconnect with that space, both from gratitude and the suffering as a wake-up call. And in some ways, we're all here as the fourth messenger. All have, in a way, answered the call of the renunciate to be here for three months, to clear away the complexities of life that lets us really explore. In some ways, we've each, for now, made that clear decision of what is really important. It's not that you don't each already know for yourselves. So the urgency isn't stirring up something new. It's just a way to help us reconnect with that, what we already know, at times when we're getting a little lost or a little low energy. And of course, it can always flip to the other side. I could just go on forever, this side, then this side, this side, then this side. 
urgency again can drift out of balance and backfire. So what as urgency inspires interest, inspires commitment, inspires effort, an opening to suffering, a gratitude, again, it can get to be a little out of balance. Both ways. Leaving the comfort zone with urgency, waking us up, we're opening more to suffering, we're really seeing what's so. Sometimes the energy in the mindfulness isn't quite as strong as the amount of difficulty that comes in, as we all well know. And sometimes, rather than just being able to resolutely meet what's happening, it's as if we're just washed, overwhelmed. The suffering just becomes so great that it's as if we're getting sucked into a black hole, just getting lost and spinning. And it's not a matter of, oh, let me just meet this mindfully. It's a matter of simply not drowning. At that point, what is really skillful before we completely wither is to back off out of skillful means. But in this state of feeling overwhelmed by suffering, it's very hard for most people to trust that backing off is what is skillful. Because usually what, what most people I know or talk to tend to do is to think, this is hard, so I must try harder. I must really sit with this. I must really meet this. And so we push and push, and again we start moving into trying to change things. We get grimmer and grimmer, and we think, well, if I try harder, then I'll really be with it. We get grimmer. Grimness is not equal to balanced effort. The more grim you are does not mean you're doing better practice, so to speak. It means, all it means is you're grim, is really all it means. So when we're getting into that space of it's too much pain, so push, 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 the absolutely skillful thing to do is to back off, open up, bring in what Thich Nhat Hanh calls seeds of joy. He talks about being in Vietnam in the war, working with the social workers, and they're so busy, and there's so much death and pain around them, and they're so busy working with it, He would say, I have to remind them to open up, to smell the beautiful smells of the herbs at night, to smell the flowers, to really appreciate the beauty of nature here in Vietnam. And you can see, we can get so involved in suffering, it seems, what do you mean, smell the nice smells of the coriander? People are dying, you know? But it's very important. We need to back off to bring, again, to refresh the heart and mind, which in itself brings back energy. So bringing in seeds of joy. I don't mean immediately go into some erotic fantasy, but more open your attention to seeds of joy that are present here and now, you know? So smell the mint, as Thich Nhat Hanh says. When we are endlessly exhorting you, to open up to sound. 
that's the way to just bring in spaciousness. I used to, in a really hard times in retreat, when I, be, I would never go outside because I was just so slow and it was too much trouble. I would, uh, <laughs> I would just go open the door of the fire escape in my little walkway there in the Catskills and stand on the fire escape and just be with that big tree that's right outside there for a few minutes. That's all. I just be with the tree. I quit trying to be mindful or know. Just, ah. The tree and the sky would bring in a spaciousness, a happiness. It was wonderful. And that was usually all I needed. Just enough to balance the grimness, the heaviness, the trying. And with that spaciousness, I could go back to my walking or sitting and just meet whatever was happening. Sometimes we need a little bit more than being with a tree for a few minutes. Sometimes you really need to go outside. You might need not to sit or walk, but just take a walk. But it's coming from skillful means, not from aversion or I've had it. And the catch is, when you're in this state where you really need the skillful means of backing off, what usually is also happening is strong self-judgment. I'm not good enough. I'm not doing this right. I'm not trying hard enough. And when self-judgment is happening and we don't see it, you'll never believe that it's skillful to back off because self-judgment is right there to say, "Uh uh-uh, you're not trying hard enough. You're lazy. You're not doing it right. What did they say about do it 100%? Go, go, try, you know, you're back in the football game. Whenever your mind says, you know what, you're not trying hard enough, in that tone of voice, it almost always means back off. But we just don't trust it. So I've learned over the years how to recognize the presence of self-judgment. That's a big step. Just recognize its presence and then realize that all your evaluations at that moment are filtered through the lens of self-judgment, and you can't believe them. So when you feel tight and grim and dour, and you're pushing, 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 and you think, I need to push harder, just... and think, oh, maybe I'm actually pushing too hard and try to open up and back off. That's how we discover balance by falling out. The worst that can happen is you back off and the energy drops a little bit. So what? Probably what will happen is you back off, becomes more spacious, and the energy comes up again and the interest comes up. We reconnect with the inner spring of interest and contentment. Another trick is when you feel that voice saying, push, push, try harder, and you're wondering whether to back off, see if you can notice the intention behind the need to try harder. Is the intention just to meet what's happening Or are you trying harder out of fear that you're going to lose it? Or trying harder out of trying to make something happen? 
or out of some kind of self-blame, I have to try harder because I'm so useless. All of those are good signs as well. Self-judgment is coloring evaluation back off. So this is our constant ongoing challenge in working with balancing energy. How not to get lost in pushing, in expectation, in dry striving. How to bring in spaciousness and nourish our heart. And at the same time, never give up. Never abandon energy either. Something that actually inspires me. I read in the Dalai Lama's autobiography, even now, the Dalai Lama, you'd think he could take it easy. He gets up early and does a formal practice of four to five hours a day. I thought, wow. Now, if you're in self-judgment, that'll only make you feel worse, so forget I said it. (laughs) If you can use it as inspiration of, oh, there's no way it's going to ever be perfect, so let go of that and just play with this ongoing balance. And every time we tip out of balance, it's just another way to learn. It's not a big mistake. This is our ongoing challenge. So let's just sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.